So tonight we're moving on into chapter 47. We're we're beginning in chapter 47. Take up the epistle of the blessed Paul the Apostle, he writes. Now, uh, when he's referring to the epistle of the blessed Paul the Apostle, uh, what would he be? What what epistle do you think he might have in mind here? Paul wrote several epistles. Well, let's logically determine this. To whom is this epistle addressed? The Corinthians. Yes. So when he says, <laughs> perhaps he has in mind the epistle of First and Second Corinthians. And in fact, we'll see that's what he does have in mind. Take up the epistle of the blessed Paul the Apostle. What did he first write to you in the beginning of the gospel? And this is a strange turn of phrase, in the beginning of the gospel. Uh, but it's actually a quotation from Philippians 4.15. It's just idiomatic, I guess, among the apostles for saying, in the beginning, uh, it, during the early years of the proclamation of the gospel in your location. Uh, so... He's saying, uh, Paul wrote to you early on in his ministry to you. What did he say? He says, truly he wrote to you in the spirit. You see how already Paul's letters have taken on canonical status. Uh, Just like we'd say, David wrote in the spirit regarding the Psalms. Here, Clement is saying, Paul wrote in the spirit. So in other words, when, when he says, wrote in the spirit, this is an indication that the believers are receiving Paul's letters as if they are on the same level as the Holy Scriptures, which is, is, is pretty impressive. Uh, Truly he wrote to you in the Spirit about himself and Cephas, that's Peter, of course, and Apollos, because even then you had split into factions. Do you know what he's talking about? Do you know the passage he has in mind? Well, hang on. Uh, I'll get a Bible. It's a good idea. Usually try to bring one to a Bible study. <laughs> okay, so here's what he's referring to. He's referring to the beginning of the epistle of 1 Corinthians, where we have this passage, starting in verse 10. Paul is criticizing uh, the Corinthians. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. See, Paul's writing this epistle from Ephesus. He's li- living at Ephesus. And some of the, some people from the household uh, of Chloe, where there was a house church in Chloe's uh, household, uh, have come over and they've tattled. They've tattled on what's going on among the Corinthian believers. And they said, you know, so-and-so's doing this, and these people are like, saying this, and that sort of thing. And so Paul's responding with this epistle. He says, you know... Uh, It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or some say, I follow Apollos. Some say, I follow Cephas, or some say, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. The issue is that there's different ideas among the apostles even about the significance of baptism and how to do it. And so we see that there's three camps here. Paul's camp, 
Peter's camp and Apollos' camp. All right? And so, you know, these, these procedural differences, Apollos was a disciple of John the Baptist. For him, baptism is baptism of repentance. Peter uh, baptizes in the name of Yeshua. Paul attaches other symbolic qualifications to it. Anyway, apparently the Corinthians have divided over these issues. And uh, so Paul rebukes them. Clement refers back to this and says, look, this isn't the first time you've had divisions in your congregation, is it? Think about what Paul wrote in, in Corinthians. He says, truly he wrote to you in the spirit about himself and Cephas and Apollos, because even then you had split into factions. Yet that splitting into factions brought less sin upon you. In other words, it wasn't so bad. For you were partisans of highly reputed apostles and a man approved by them. Highly reputed apostles are Peter and Paul. The man approved by them, Apollos. Apollos was not an apostle. He, he never saw the master. He was not a follower of the master. He's a follower of John the Baptist. So, he says, In contrast now, think about those who have perverted you and diminished the respect due you do your renowned love for the brotherhood. So it says, back then you had divisions too, but you were, you were dividing, you know, you were following men who were worthy of, if, if you have to divide, this, this was worth it. But compare that to the people that are, are leading you into a schism now. It is disgraceful, dear friends. Yes, utterly disgraceful and unworthy of your conduct in the Messiah that it should be reported that the well-established and ancient church of the Corinthians, well, he's using ancient here, you know. <laughs> in other words, two generations back. Ancient, I don't know. What, uh, Paul established the church in, in the, the assembly in Corinth in the 50s. And here we are in the 90s. So it's been about, it's been around for 40 years or so. But okay. So the ancient assembly of the Corinthians, because of one or two persons rebelling against its elders, against its presbyters, usually that's all it really takes is one or two people. As long as they're influential, as long as they can carry, you know, the, you know, significant influence in the congregation, uh, and this report has reached not only us, but also those who differ from us. Who are those who differ from us? Non-believers. I think what he's referring to is the larger Jewish community. Though it might also imply pagans, but that just that seems like you would use a different term than those who differ from us. Uh, instead, those who differ from us seems to me to imply. Uh, other Jewish people who differ over the question of Messiah. And so he says, this report about your schism, about how your whole assembly is falling apart and everything, has reached not only us, but also those who differ from us, with the result that you heap blasphemies upon the name of the Lord because of your stupidity and create danger for yourselves as well. Okay, that's pretty strong language. How do the Corinthians heap blasphemies on the name of the master? They don't. That's not what they're doing. They're just having a fight. But this is a very Jewish idea. It's the concept of Chilul Hashem, which means profaning the name. 
And ordinarily we say Chilul Hashem in regard to, you know, Hashem, <laughs> in regard to God. And we say, uh, when somebody is behaving badly in a way that uh, is a, a clearly a sinful manner or something that doesn't uphold the standards of the people of God, uh, then that gives other people occasion to say, uh, oh, so that's what you believers are like. That's what you Jews are like. That's what, oh, so, and it, so in other words, our bad behavior reflects badly on God. That's the concept of Chilul Hashem. And so that's what he's, he's using the same concept here. Uh, and he's saying, uh, you're heaping blasphemies on the name of the master. Now, certainly not what they meant to do. And blasphemies, remember, uh, blasphemy doesn't have the, sac the sac sacred associations. I think when we think of blasphemy, it has to be always counter-sanctity that's going on. But actually, the Greek word behind blasphemy just means derisive language. You know, you're, you're heaping uh, derision on Yeshua's name. Because now, uh, these people can point to you and they can say, oh, so that's how, uh, that's how all your peace and love and, you know, oh, you know, the disciples who love, you know, love one another. Oh, that's, that looks great. None of that for me, thanks. <laughs> and then he says, and you create danger for yourselves as well. How do they create danger for themselves? Well, their schism has brought them notoriety. And if you're a Christian in the first century, you don't want notoriety because it's an illegal religion. That's like, imagine, just to give you an example, imagine if we were running a methamphetamine lab, okay? And um, we were fairly successful and, you know, doing a good job. And then we had a big falling out. People like, you know, that involved in the production of the methamphetamines were fighting with each other. And, and this was getting all around town that, you know, all of a sudden uh, we'd be in danger because of the notoriety that our fight had brought upon it. That's kind of what's going on here. They're doing something illegal. They're believing in Yeshua and following him as Gentiles. It's illegal. So he says, you're bringing danger on yourselves. It says, let us therefore root this out quickly and let us fall down before Hashem and pray to him with tears that he may be merciful and be reconciled to us and restore us to the honorable and pure conduct which characterizes our love for the brotherhood. This is a good text for, um, for Yom Kippur. You know, falling down with tears before Hashem and asking him to reconcile us. He says, for this is an open gate. That's a good text for the high holidays, huh? the, the day of the open gate. This is an open gate of righteousness leading to life. And when he says leading to life, of course, he means eternal life. As it is written in the Psalms, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter by it. We're going to be singing that psalm. In just a few days, Sukkot is starting and we're going to be singing, you know, we say the Hallel every day of Sukkot. And this is something for you. You know, you come here and you say the Hallel with Beth Emanuel, but, but just because we don't have service in the non 
Sabbath days doesn't mean that you shouldn't say the Hallel. You should say the Hallel and shake that lulav every day of the festival of Sukkot. So you'll be saying quite a bit of this, open the gates of righteousness for me. Where's he going with this? Although many gates are opened, this righteous gate is the Christian gate. Which righteous gate? What's the Christian gate? Blessed are those who have entered by it and direct their path in holiness and righteousness, doing everything without confusion. All right, this is very confusing, <laughs> doing everything without confusion. But I have a midrash that will clear everything up. He really says the Christian gate? Yeah. He's using the term Christian at that time? Yes. In fact, the term Christian has been on the table since um, it started to be used in Antioch even before Paul had begun his ministry. There's two names for, for the sect of the believers. Uh, actually, there's plenty. There's, there's several names, but there's two primary names. One is the Hebrew, Notzrim, which is the Nazarenes. The other is Christianos, the, uh, the Christians. If, if you're speaking Greek, you would say Christians. If you're speaking Hebrew, you would say Notzrim. So, the Christian gate. He says, although many gates are open, this righteous gate is the Christian gate. Blessed are all those who have entered by it and direct their path in holiness and righteousness. All right. So I'm going to bring you a midrash. This is from a midrash on Psalm 118, that very passage. Open to me the gates of righteousness, the psalm says. When a man is asked in the world to come, what was your work? And he replies, well, I fed the hungry. They will say to him, this is the gate of the Lord. Enter into it, you who fed the hungry. So there's going to be a gate that says, feeders of hungry. <laughs> you know? um, when a man replies, I gave drink to the thirsty, they'll say to him, well, this is the gate of the Lord. Enter into it, you who gave drink to the thirsty. When a man replies, I clothe the naked, they'll say to him, this is the gate of the Lord. Enter into it, you who clothe the naked. And the same will be said to him who brought up orphans and the one who gave alms, and the one who performed any deeds of loving kindness. They all have their separate gate into the world to come. That's, that's the idea of the psalm. That's what the rabbi said it means when the psalm says, open to me the gates of righteousness. Why gates of righteousness? Because these are all acts of righteousness that are being described. Do, do you notice the similarity with this and the parable of the king in disguise? The parable of the, the master's parable of the king in disguise where he says, um, the you know, sheep and the goats, the sheep and the goats. It says, uh, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. And it's bang, bang, bang. It's almost like this is, text is a parallel to Yeshua's teaching in Matthew. Is that Matthew 26? Matthew 26. You have these different gates, and each of these different gates correspond in Jewish teaching to a particular act of righteousness. Which one is the Christian gate? Which act of righteousness are we talking about is the Christian gate? So you can see that, I, th I think it's pretty clear that Clement is interacting with this Midrash here to come up with this idea, because we wouldn't have come up with this ourselves. You wouldn't come up with open for me the gates of righteousness. And realize, eh, there's different gates and they, you know, it's, it's anyway. So I think it's pretty clear that he's interacting with, if not this midrash, at least a similar tradition, a similar teaching, which is the Christian gate. 
He already told us. The Christian gate is the one, is the gate of the honorable and pure conduct which characterizes our love for the brotherhood. So they'll know you are my disciples by your love. This is the one that the, the love for the brotherhood is your act of righteousness. Uh, he goes on and he says, um, Although many gates are opened, this righteous gate is the Christian gate. Blessed are those who have entered by it and direct their path in holiness and righteousness, doing everything without confusion. Let a man be faithful and let him be able to expound knowledge. Let him be wise in the interpretation of discourses. Let him be energetic in deeds. Let him be pure. For the greater he seems to be, the more he ought to be humble and the more he ought to seek his Seek the common advantage of all, not his own. That's how Lightfoot translates it here. Um, I would make a few suggestions. First of all, uh, I looked at another translation for verse 5. Instead of let a man, it says, if a man is faithful. And this, this syntax works much better. Secondly, it says, he, he says, let him be able to expound knowledge. Let him be wise in interpretation of discourses. So you see this, this uh, series of words, knowledge, wisdom, interpretation. The word interpretation is actually equivalent to discernment, discernment. So knowledge, wisdom, discernment. These are the three big attributes of the Holy Spirit. So you always find these in proximity to one another. You know, Hashem always says, you have filled him with the spirit of wisdom, insight, and discernment. That's just, you know, that's chokma uh, bina da'at. Chokma bina da'at. Chokma is wisdom. Bina is discernment, the ability to, you know, kind of separate and choose between the right and the wrong. And um, da'at is knowledge. Okay, so let me read it to you this way. If a man is faithful, if a man is able to expound knowledge if a man is wise in interpretation of discourses, if a man is energetic in deeds, that in mitzvahs, if a man is pure, pure-hearted, if, if he's all of this, and the greater he seems to be, you know, because he's got all this and more, as they say, the more he ought to be humble, the more he ought to seek the com common advantage of all and not his own. So the implication is that the new elders in Corinth are these super spiritual men. They're, they have all this going for them. They're faithful. They can expound with great knowledge. They are wise in the interpretation and, uh, and, and all of this stuff. They have all this stuff going. Saying, if that's the case, if they're really all this and more, then they should be seeking the common good, not their own Advantage. Chapter 49. Let the one who has love in Christ fulfill the commandments of Christ. Now, what are the commandments of Christ? There's a lot of commandments of Christ. He tells us to do a lot of stuff. Do this, don't do that. You know, you got the whole Sermon on the Mount. How many, he makes a lot of commandments. So what does he mean? Fulfill the commandments of Christ. Well, there's two big ones. The two big ones occur when he's asked, what are the greatest commandments? And he cites two commandments from the Torah. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So 
These are the commandments of Christ, the two big commandments. So you notice they're not his original. They are the commandments of the Torah. But they're the two commandments that he said, all the Torah and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Who can describe the bond of God's love? You're supposed to love God. You're supposed to love your fellow, love your neighbor. Who is able to explain the majesty of the beauty of God's love? The height to which love leads is indescribable. Love unites us with God. Love covers a multitude of sins. Which is a quotation from Peter who's drawing that from the Proverbs. I love that verse. Love covers a multitude of sins. This is a big part of, you know, you know how do we love one another? How do we, you know, love one another? This is... This is Really, a, a big part of loving someone is looking away from their imperfections, right? I mean, think about it. Uh, I'll give you an example. There's a story. Uh, Noah. Noah gets uh, all drunk and naked in his tent, right? And he's laying all passed out. His son, Ham, comes in and sees him and points him out to his brothers. Hey, look at dad. (laughs) His two brothers, however, Shem and Japheth, they don't look on their father's shame. Instead, they take a blanket and walk backwards into the tent and lay it over their father. So thereby covering, covering his indiscretion and his sin. This is a great story. I don't know if you've ever thought about this story. But this is really the essence of what love is. To be able to, you know, because people, oftentimes people think, you know, maybe especially husbands and wives, think that their their mission in life is to fix the other spouse. You know, like, I need to, I need to fix you. No. Love covers a multitude of sins. So Lashon Hara, you can see Lashon Hara is the opposite of love. Criticism of someone is the opposite of love, right? Uh, this starts to sound a lot like 1 Corinthians 13, this chapter. This is such a beautiful chapter. I call this Clement's love chapter. And remember, he, just two chapters ago, he referred to the epistle of 1 Corinthians. So he's clearly riffing on it. You can bet the believers in Corinth know that chapter by heart. They know it. They're proud of it. It's like the most famous passage, the most famous chapter in the epistles of the New Testament, and it was written to them. Yeah. They have a lot to be proud of there, and so Clement's using that to his advantage. He writes, Love endures all things, is patient in all things. This is just like, just like 1 Corinthians 13. He says, There's nothing, there is nothing coarse, nothing arrogant in love, just like 1 Corinthians 13. Love knows nothing of schisms. Love leads no rebellions. Love does everything in harmony. So now, now the gloves come off, and you see where he's, he was going with this love talk. In love, all the elect of God were made perfect. Without love, nothing is pleasing to God. Remember how Paul begins that passage? He says, even if I can speak in the tongue of angels and the tongue of men, even if I know all wisdom and perceive all mysticism 
You know, even if I have acquired all this and I've, I have all, all the mitzvahs even, he says, even if I, if I have, uh, yet I don't have love, then I'm nothing, then it's empty, right? So same thing here is, uh, you, you know, in this conflict, clearly this conflict in Corinth, there's a lack of love. Love has been breached. In love, the master received us. Okay, we have to read that as, in love, Hashem received us. Because of the love he had for us, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in accordance with God's will, gave his blood for us, his flesh for our flesh, his life for our lives. You see, dear friends, how great and wonderful love is. It's perfection is beyond description. When he says how great and wonderful love is, I can't help but compare this to a series of teachings in the Talmud. I believe we find them in tractate Yoma, which is the Yom Kippur tractate. I'm pretty sure there, it might even be the last chapter of tractate Yoma. Uh, called, and and it's, a, it's a chapter that's um, called the chapter of repentance. And it begins with that statement, how great is repentance? How great is tshuva? And then it continue, each sage brings an example of how great repentance is, the greatness of repentance. And so this, this particular chapter seems very similar. Like It's like along the same lines, only it's saying, how great is love? Let me tell you how great love is. Uh, he says, who is worthy to be found in it? to be found in love, except those whom God considers worthy. Let us therefore ask and petition his mercy that we may be found blameless in love, standing apart from the factiousness of men. You understand factiousness? It's, um, yeah, dissensions, the quarrelings of men. This is a pretty good sentiment, though. He says, let us therefore ask and petition God to be merciful to us to, in, in his mercy so that we may be found blameless in love. So we ask God for a lot of things, uh, you know, but I don't know if we've ever asked for this. If this is on your prayer list, Hashem, may I be blameless in love? Probably not on the prayer list, but wow, what a beautiful, what a beautiful idea to, uh, to try to nurture that, to try to cultivate that. I'm going to be a person of love. <laughs> I like that. I think, I think we could work with that. I think that's a, I think that's a, a worthy goal. You know, it's like I have this book uh, that made a big impact on me. Not big enough, but um, the Chofetz Chaim's book on uh, the laws of proper speech. It's a beautiful book. You know, made a big impact on me. Art Scroll puts out a version of it. I can't remember what the Art Scroll version is called, but they put out a daily devotional version of it where it's like 150, breaks it up into 150 lessons. 150, and each one is about a page. They're like a little devotional. And then next to it is another, so you, another page with some practical sort of teachings from, from this, on the same subject. You go through these one one day at a time, and you learn a law a day, and and, uh, and then you have a practical example. Sort of. 
it's really fabulous. It's, re it's really a fabulous piece of work. I think it's difficult too. I think people are, are, are baffled by the New Testament's love talk. I think, I think we always have been. I don't think it's new to our culture. I think it's always been baffling. It's like, okay, what does that mean? And I think that, um, I think it's abused. I think it's terribly abused. It, you know, and people will abuse it. It's, you know, people, people who abuse and take advantage, uh, they know, you know, that they, they get around Christians. It's like, you have to treat me with love, you know? And, you know, but uh, when you study, out, study it out from, from the words of Jesus and from the apostles, it's not a blank check. For that says, please abuse me and walk over me. It's in fact, I don't think that the apostles, Jesus and the apostles, have the same idea in their head when they say love, as we have. Well, so you know, it's a, I think it's a it's a worthy subject that, and I I think the Chofetz Chaim needs to come and write us a book on love, you know. We have a vast many. <laughs> oh, I love this and I love that. And that word is just... Oh, yeah, we use the word too much, for sure. But you know what? Hebrew is, works the same way. You have one word for love, and it gets used in all sorts of different applications. It's romantic love between a man and a woman, love for God, love for neighbor. Well, we're talking, we're here we're talking about the commandments of Christ. Love for God and love for neighbor, love for your fellow. That's, that's what's in view here. Let me go back to the very practical example to start with. Like a Torah-based love is, is very specific. The laws of proper speech are an act of love. To treat one another with the laws of proper speech. To not speak about people behind their back, even when you could, you know? Even when there's something really delicious that you could say. <laughs> right, right. Something entertaining. An amusing anecdote. <laughs> I mean, this is a practical example. It's, you know, and, and so I think, I think if we were to nail it down, nail down and drill down and say, what is love from an apostolic and biblical perspective, we would find that it has very little to do with how you feel and everything to do with how you behave towards people. All the generations from Adam to this day have passed away. Yeah. Same is true in our day and age. <laughs> but those who by God's grace were perfected in love have a place among the godly who will be revealed when the kingdom of Christ visits us. So what does this mean? He says, those who were perfected in love, uh, whatever, however we're going to understand that term, those who practiced love, perhaps. Yes, those who practiced love, and we're talking about this biblical kind of love, love for God, love for neighbor. Even though they passed away like every other human being that's ever lived, everybody died, nevertheless, they're, they're in storage. They're going to be revealed when the Messianic era arrives. So he's, what's he talking about? He's talking about the resurrection. 
He's talking about the, who is going to attain the resurrection of the dead. That's what he's talking about here. He says, for it is written, enter into the innermost rooms for a very little while until my anger and wrath shall pass away. That's a quote from Isaiah. Enter into the innermost rooms. It's, that's your tombs. In other words, go lay in your tomb for a little while until my anger and wrath shall pass away. And then if you kept reading the passage in Isaiah, you'd see that uh, it, it refers to the resurrection. But instead, Clement jumps to a different passage that we do not have, or his version of Isaiah is different than ours. Uh, because it goes on to say, and I will remember a good day and will raise you from the grave, from your graves. Rabbi Meir says, I think Rabbi, I don't remember the whole quote, but I think Rabbi Meir refers to the day of the, the day of resurrection as, as a good day. Should have looked that up. Blessed are we, dear friends, if we continue to keep God's commandments in the harmony of love, that our sins may be forgiven through love. Isn't that nice? Now, what commandments is he referring to? God's commandments. This is the Torah. You know, so he's, he's writing, he's writing to the Corinthians. And he's saying, you know, we're, we're blessed or we happy are we if we continue to keep the Torah in the harmony of love, that our sins may be forgiven us through love. For it is written, and now he quotes from the Psalms, blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will reckon no sin and in whose mouth. There's no deceit. Now, this declaration of blessedness was pronounced upon those who have been chosen by God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Which is our sixth doxology so far. I don't know how many there are. That's why I'm counting as we go. So those, are, those two chapters are, are the love chapters. Chapter 51. So then, for whatever sins we've committed... And whatever we've done through any tricks of the adversary, you know, the devil, he lays his snares at our feet every day uh, to tempt us, to trick us up. Uh, let us ask that we may be forgiven. And those two who set themselves up as leaders of rebellion and dissension ought to look for, to, to the common ground of hope. They should look for forgiveness too. For those who walk in fear and love, that's fear of God and love of God, the two motivations that we have for serving Hashem, the fear of God and the love of God, those who walk in fear and love prefer that they themselves rather than their neighbors should fall into suffering and that they would rather bring condemnation upon themselves than upon the harmony which has been so nobly and righteously handed down to us. So in other words, he's saying, if these leaders, these new leaders of yours are godly men, they'll look around and see how much trouble they've caused and they'll step down of their own accord. For it is good for man to confess his transgressions rather than to harden his heart. As the heart of those who rebelled against Moses, the servant of God, was hardened. Their condemnation was made very clear. Now he's speaking about Korah's rebellion. For they went down to Hades alive. They went down to Sheol alive. So this is from Numbers chapter 16, where the earth opens its mouth and swallows up Korah and the Reubenites. They went down to Hades alive, and death will be their shepherd. That's a terrible sentiment. You know, because we look to Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. But uh, not so the wicked. Death 
will be their shepherd. That's from the Psalms as well. It's from Psalm 49. Another example. Pharaoh and his army and all the rulers of Egypt, the chariots and their riders were plunged into the Red Sea and perished for no other reason than that their foolish hearts were hardened after the signs and the wonders that had been accomplished in the land of Egypt by Moses, the servant of God. So what's his point? Don't, his point is, he knows that the leaders in Corinth are going to be reading this epistle. He's like, don't harden your heart. Don't be like Korah. Don't be like the Reubenites. Don't be like Pharaoh. Step down. One more chapter. He says, Hashem, brothers, has no need of anything at all. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything from us. He requires nothing of anyone except that he make a confession to him. For David, the chosen one, says, I will confess to the Lord and it will please him more than a young calf with horns and hooves. Let the poor see this and rejoice. So in other words, Clement's invoking this this line of, uh, of psalms and prophecies where Hashem says, hey, you know, the sacrifices are nice. I'm glad, you know, thanks for the sacrifices, but I actually own the cattle on a thousand hills, right? Uh, so, so what is it that Hashem really wants? He wants our hearts. He wants us to, you know, he, he's looking for, he says here, uh, confession, uh, a contrite heart. Another quote, he says, and again, he says, sacrifice to God, a sacrifice of praise and pay your vows to the most high. Call upon me in the day of your affliction and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. And here's the, the, the point for the sacrifice of God is a broken spirit. And of course, this is what Clement is looking for from the leaders of the insurrection in Corinth and from their followers, a contrite and broken spirit. 